Oh, welcome back. Welcome back. We're doing it again. Doing it again. Once again, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will be taking you all back to Blood in My Eye by George Jackson uh, at some point. But there are some... Uh, we're, we're, we're kind of getting a little closer to caught up to the where the weeks are. And so current yeah. events are are always going to be a little bit delayed. But these are just slightly less delayed than usual for us. Um, and as a result, a couple of things have happened throughout the world that are uh, soul-crushing. Yeah, soul-crushing. Yeah. We'll go soul-crushing. Yeah. Um, and I think the biggest one... Now, we've already talked about this at length on a previous episode when the actual leak came out of the document. Um, but it was made official earlier this week, uh, or late last week, I guess. Uh, Roe versus Wade is no longer law. No longer precedent anymore mm-hmm. goodbye 50 years of progress goodbye mm-hmm. um so that that was the one that people have been anticipating and of course um i you can't it's 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 never overcovered because it's that big of a deal right but it, it means everything else gets kind of undercovered because it is one of quite a number of Supreme Court rulings that are just again we talked about it before right it's it's a facade these things don't really provide rights the Supreme Court was always reactionary this is something we've said for a long time because it's been true for forever right this is the ruling of nine oligarchs uh, who are appointed for life who just decide things um, and some of their rulings had accidentally come out a little progressive basically in the back of waves of social pressure and they're all getting scaled back. Every single goddamn one. Uh, most of them were centered around the 14th Amendment and constitutional originalist, quote, 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 which is, they're just fascists. They just want to go to before the Civil War. They're, they openly want slavery back. That's why they mean originalists. That's when slavery wasn't outlawed in the Constitution. Let's not beat around the bush, right? Um, mm-hmm. They hate the 14th Amendment, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. They hate them, and the 14th being used for other things they don't like. They have their eyes set on it, and they are, they're just stripping things away. Um, and so we can't not focus on the other rulings. In fact, there's one that I specifically think is an even bigger deal that happened today. But even with that, they, they, every one of these is so egregious, and, and Roe v. Wade being rolled back is such a big deal that – even with it being covered 10 times more than everything else, it's still undercovered, right? Yeah. I mean, we don't talk about any of this shit enough. Um, yeah. And, of course, the reaction from Dems, who were just running Quaylar in Texas, because, you know, they're, they're uh, anti-abortion candidate down there against a uh, pro-choice progressive, and who Quaylar won the primary by a few hundred votes on the back of a Pelosi and Biden um you know, endorsement. So they're still doing these things today. And remember, Biden is the one who wrote the law that created the whole loophole that that spun this all back to rolling, you know, Roe v. Wade back way back in the day, right? Biden, who also wrote the crime bills. Biden, who also was a segregationist. You know, this is, and people go, oh, that was a long time ago, but he hasn't done anything to undo any of those policies. And he's the fucking president yeah. right now. So why are we pretending he's any different? Right? Oh, because he got old and soft and squishy, and now he's old Uncle Joe, and we like him. Ooh. Yeah, I, I, I don't get it. And of course, the reactions have been, oh. I, and it's not only been, oh, like, nothing would be grotesque, and it would be a better reaction than what's happened. 
What's happened? What, you're telling me Nancy Pelosi reading poetry to you didn't raise <laughs> Zionist, your revolutionary spirit to go take back your rights? The same Zionist poem for the third time. Um, Look, she doesn't have a lot, okay? She's got to work <laughs> with what she has. Um, but also, you know, I mean, the, it's basically been, hey, you know, it's fundraise, of course. They, they, they wear the fundraising on its face, right? So that it the was, ant- they had to have those templates printed out already, right? They yeah. had to. I those mean, were we had- so, they spent more time working on that template than any other logical response. I mean, there was a leak, and between the leak and now, they were running a Dem primary and backing an anti abortion candidate into victory. They knew this was coming, and the thing is, people are going, well, they knew this was coming, you didn't act. No, they did act they went oh we'll just fundraise off this again get that prepped up right and even cnn who is just an absolute lap dog right we've said this for a long time um Perenni's analysis uh i think is best on it and this is one of the the things what that uh inventing reality brings to the table that for as good as manufacturing consent is both editions of inventing reality are, are, are far better right um uh and it's probably more important for any work than black shirts and reds. And we talk about there's many more important people to read than Parenti. Uh, but Parenti does incredible needed work. And Inventor Reality talks about how the media is incredibly conservative. And the way it works is they go after, you know, they, they back the conservative view. And the conservative view being pro-cop, pro-military, anti-homelessness, you know, anti-indigenous. It's always conservative. It's always, you know, the, the poor people doing it. In fairness and accuracy and reporting, um, and the guys at Citations Needed, you know, Adam Johnson, Nima Shirazi, they do a great job of breaking this, you know, every one of these issues down as, as they come up. And you can see it's always a conservative bent, right? There's, there's no even liberal bent on the issues. There's no progressive bent on the issues. They're out now conservative and then they make you focus on personalities with politicians um is what what Prenny focused on and so they're overwhelmingly conservative but then people think of them as liberal because they focus on personalities and while they go way harder at any radicals that somehow even make the news they mostly just ignore them or, or criminalize you know report them being criminalized um but you know Whenever they, they do focus on those personalities, of course, they're much more favorable to liberals, except for Fox News. And so CNN is like the epitome of that, right? They're, they're conservative on the views. They're soft in the Democratic uh, Party. People specifically, they should be the softest. Like CNN or MSNBC talking to a, a Democratic vice president is the most cupcake interview in human history. And CNN was pressing Kamala Harris was like, what are you going to do? What is your plan? And she basically was like, uh, we can't do anything. You need to vote. Uh, anyway, we should, we should vote because we should also be outraged at the child tax credit, which again was presented as a tax credit. It was kind of bullshit. It should just be money giving to parents if you're going to go that way. And the Dems had a chance to defend that and they, they dropped the ball on that one. They don't care about any of it. It's all just campaign promise bullshit. Right. Yep. Uh, but they couldn't even say abortion. They're like, oh, uh, focus on another issue and throw us money. It's like, what the fuck? It, it um, makes absolutely no sense unless it's just controlled opposition, unless that's all you want. Is and, and that's what they always that's what they always opposition. have been. And the problem is, is controlled opposition. The real controlled opposition is, you know, a lot of. Uh, the, the progressive liberals or social democrats or the people that are, are in the midst of radicalizing and they're doing a good job of, of radicalizing, but then they can't let go of their imperialism or their white supremacy and, and the voices 
that that you know supplement that 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 do the you know neither Washington nor Moscow that that do the oh you can't give land back or, or you know anti racism and and wokeness is anti war whoever does that bullshit seems to get elevated with with money that's real controlled opposition Democrats aren't even that they're just a frontline bourgeois party okay they are what Republicans have always been and yet. In the political arena, they're farther left than people – like, they're as far left as people can imagine. So in there, they still function as controlled opposition, and they're not even the controlled opposition. It's yeah, they're it's, not even – It's a garbage not even pale to bourgeois party. Yeah. It's it's embarrassingly bad. Yes. Um, and so, again, the, the attack on uh, women's rights in this country is atrocious. It is uh, egregious, and it is – just another step down the road towards full-blown, regular old, I don't know what else to call it than fascism at this point. Yeah, and let's um, remember, too, that that's only one avenue of misogyny, you know? I mean, we, we've got to talk about, and we brought it up in the show before, and we will bring it up again. We will certainly bring it up again as we do our collaboration with Red Nation um, up next uh, here. Uh, spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Um, is, you know, missing, murdered, indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit uh, people, right? I mean, that's that's misogyny, right? Rape is, is misogyny. Rape's not being convicted is misogyny. Women's prisons are misogyny. The entire structure of misogyny is so much larger and more complex than just abortion rights. And yet abortion rights are so fundamental to it. And they're just, they, they've been attacked for years. You know, 2009, Dr. Tiller was assassinated going to church and there were attacks like that happening all the time in the eighties. Um, you know, the, the laws and the states have been chipping away at the stuff, trying to get it up when it was thought to be a Hail Mary for forever. And lo and behold, this Hail Mary finally got caught in, in the worst way, you know. And and this is, again, one of many rulings. We've lost Miranda rights, you know. We've lost the ability to appeal when there is clear evidence of innocence and people are on death row. And now, probably the most egregious of all – um, is, you know, in 2019, there was a ruling that a large chunk of Oklahoma was still indigenous territory per treaty rights, right? And treaty rights are never respected. That's one of the primary ways that colonialism goes on. We talk about, you know, people recognize, uh, Israel being oppressive, um, and recognizing Israel being oppressive and being anti-Zionist is the farthest thing from, from anti-Semitism. It is being, you know, a decolonial revolution. Is, is opposing that and standing with Palestine, right? Uh, but if you do that and then you ignore other settle, co- settler colonies, that is anti-Semitism. And so when people see the settlements, uh, you know, in the West Bank and and you know people people settling in East Jerusalem, right? That stuff still happens here. You know, we we still deal with all kinds of phenomenons here. And one of the primary ways it happens in both places, you know, the, the two state solution was what Israel put forth and then crushed it themselves. The treaties are what are put forth by the United States as the settled colony. And then, you know, it gets doubled back on every time consistently. And so even the Supreme Court ruled treaty rights, ruled, you know, sovereign nations. So then a non indigenous man um and his indigenous was abusing his indigenous child i think it was abusing his five-year-old um and so this was you know it, it, 
this was, um, yeah, here it is. It's Victor Manuel Castro, um, who severely undernourished his stepdaughter, uh, who's a Cherokee citizen, right? And she's five years old. So he basically was starving his five-year-old Cherokee stepdaughter. And in doing this, I mean, he's very, very wrong, right? He has to be prosecuted. This horrible child abuse and all, to- all kinds of the time, the division of family services is just there to rip uh, you know, children away and destroy families of poor, but especially indigenous um, families and rip them away and, and, and give them to white parents. And now you have a, a white parent finally, you know, doing doing something wrong and being recognized by the authorities that like this abuse has to stop. But it's still done by the state and it's still done by the state in an indigenous territory. And so in order to prosecute him with abusing and undernourishing his Cherokee stepdaughter, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4. Oh, um, yeah, no, everything in Oklahoma goes to the state. It, it basically in one ruling that, that looked like justice for child abuse in this giant wave of civil rights being stripped back, the Supreme Court basically said, we violated this before. We just don't care about treaty rights at all. They just don't matter. The entire United States is sovereign and there, there is no sovereignty to, into, I mean, that's really what this ruling boils down to. And so it seems yeah. like, you know, a child, a, a Cherokee child getting justice against a white abusive step parent. Right. But that's not how the Supreme Court rulings work. No. <laughs> uh, oh, no, 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 no. Nor, nor is the putative state ever done something that stops child abuse. Right. I mean, we talked about this before that uh, domestic violence and rape are not really stopped by the prison industrial complex. We're, we're abolitionists for a reason, right? I mean, you, you have to think about the victims and bring them away to, to safety. And the state only does the bring them away when they can rip them away from poor and especially indigenous people and give them to adoptive families that are often abusive, um, often criminalizing, you know, poverty or addiction. They, they don't really take people out of abuse, but they will prosecute, uh, whoever they deem guilty, which of course becomes very, very racialized. And in this case, completely violates treaty sovereignty. Yeah. And it it sets it, it, it is wild how quickly it turned around. I think we had quoted it in 2019. The rule the original ruling was only in 2020. Oh, I we're t- talking two years, two years to reverse to reverse precedent. And the only thing that changed is Comey Barrett over Ginsburg. That's the only that's the only change mm-hmm. they needed and this this rammed through. Mm-hmm. Um now who cares? It doesn't I mean it's the Supreme Court. I don't care if if it was the one old oligarch or the other old oligarch, but that was the dynamic that brought this into being at the very least. Yeah. Um but the bigger question then becomes is is what what obligation is there at all now to honor any sort of of indigenous sovereignty or indigenous rights uh, in in regards to to tribal lands I, yeah. it doesn't seem that there's any yeah i mean that's that's exactly what comes with this ruling and that's that's the importance of it being a supreme court ruling you know and it, again this is this is the settler colonial state it's going to stay they're going to say whatever you know they want that's going to uphold their settler colony right that doesn't make it a legitimate ruling that's just what they throw out there um for themselves uh so the whole ruling is bullshit but again it's that red tape it's that play by the rules right it's the thing that's kind of half holding them to the treaties that are never properly upheld and now that's gone and every time one of those is gone it is an enormous step back in protections for human life for any exercise of the under delivered promised rights at all mm-hmm. 
and and that's again they they just the hits they keep on coming as as yeah it is. I, I mean just straightforwardly you know again we we don't care we only care what the supreme court says because we know that that affects our material reality and that affects the fight we have but these rulings have no legitimacy right they're a bunch of oligarchs just upholding white supremacy and we're here to smash the white supremacist settler colony and we have to oppose the united states in every facet that's why we support land back that's why we support the establishment of a new africa across the black belt these are these are material things right land is power and that's something we're seeing economically too you know in the last Mm -hmm. in the last two recessions uh both 2008 and 2001 and to to a greater extent also the the covid recession which we really haven't felt we're we're about to feel the inflation and food shortage recession and again we've said before if it's before the great depression we call it a panic if it's after the great depression we call it a recession the great depression we call it depression they're all depressions right so here comes a depression mm-hmm. sorry folks but things are you know late late 19th century you know, the businesses had monopolized. And when that started getting broken apart because worker movements were gaining power and when land couldn't keep expanding because so much had been robbed from indigenous people already, the economy started moving towards investments. And this was the monopolization of the imperialism is what we read with Lenin, right? Well, Mm -hmm. now things are back to hegemony and those investments aren't paying off anymore because the imperialism has nowhere else to expand. And so it's turning back to land. And, and you could see, you know, the oligarchs out in front of this, right? The largest landowner in the United States is Bill Gates. That's not an accident, right? And so, you know, we're about to hit another recession of land, but whether it's indigenous sovereignty returned back, whether it's understanding the economy that is about to set its sights against us, once again, um, you know, whether it's, it's looking for the sovereignty of, of black people and, and, you know, a, a, uh, uh, black nationalism in support of black nationalism, what, whatever it is, right? Or, of course, pan Africanism in Africa, whatever it is, the issue is land. It's always land, stupid. Exactly. Um, that was a really funny then, economy, stupid, but I'm not good at jokes sometimes. So. Uh, no, 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 no. Everyone, everyone appreciates a good Carville reference every now and again. You got to remember that old ghoul still kicking around. Um, last but not least, David, I know almost nothing about this, so I will kick it to you quicker than I normally do. But general strike Ecuador, question mark? Uh, yes. So this is, it's basically, it's, it's against the high rising costs of living. Uh, but this is an indigenous led general strike against the government. It's basically resuming the strike that was happening in 2019 that kind of settled down, um, when, it kind of settled down when they, they were going into elections, right? And we saw that. I mean, we've, we tracked this election. We were incredibly disappointed when Guillermo Lasso won. Well, now the general strike is coming at him because he's implemented the, you know, exact policies that were expected and they've been disastrous and indigenous people are not standing for it. And they're under, you know, new leadership, but it's the same thing, right? It is opposition to imperialism. It is opposition to the stripping away of, um, state subsidies. It's, it's opposition to the high cost of living. It's opposition to the oppression of indigenous people. These, this is indigenous people taking power back in a revolutionary fashion. And so, you know, we fully support the, it's a general strike in Ecuador. 
100%. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, okay. Anything else percolating on your side that you want to get out there before uh, we jump into the reading for this week? No, I should also add to those general strikes in Ecuador. We just mentioned we're, we're going to talk more about um, indigenous issues, of course, when we're collaborating with the Red Nation, because we'll have a very good resource on that. So I'm sure that general strike will come up again in the current events then, too. So I, hopefully we'll have more information on that for you in the coming weeks. And hopefully um, you can dig in and get, you know, good resources like Calsatchin News uh, can give you keep you up on it in the meantime. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, well, without further ado, then we will jump into our reading for this week. Uh, again, we are reading George Jackson's Blood in My Eye, and we are starting on page 163, uh, last paragraph from the bottom. There was positive mobilization of workers and the lower class and a highly developed class consciousness. There was indeed a very deep economic crisis with attendant strikes, unionizing, lockouts, break-ins, call-outs of the National Guard. The lower class was threatening to unite under the pressure of economic disintegration. Revolution was in the air. Socialist vanguard parties were leading it. There was terrorism from the right, from groups such as Guardians of the Republic, the Black Legion, Peg Leg White Stormtroopers. That's, I, 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 I want to find them. Boy, they're just a bunch of pirates. Just I, a bunch of peg leg pirates. I, I would stay away from them. They sound like the fascist ones, though. Well, yeah, but I, I I'm curious. I mean, you, I mean, regular fascist, I know, but fascist with a peg leg and possibly a parrot in tow. I'm, you know, I, let me see. Uh, and hired assassins who carried out the beginnings of a contrapositive, suppressive mobilization. Under the threat of revolution, the ruling class, true to Marxian theory, became all the more co-optive and dangerous. FDR was born and bred in this ruling class of families. His role was to form the first fascist regime to merge the economic, political, and labor elites. Governing elites, corporative, fa- corporative state, fascism, his role was to limit competition, replace it with the dream of cooperation, to put laissez-faire to rest, and initiate the acceptance of government intervention into economic affairs. Oh, buddy, he succeeded. Mm-hmm. Oh, swing and a, oh, it's deep to left field for FDR. A great many of the early trends of American history prepared the way for the ultimate success of fascism in its highest form. From the very beginning of America's existence as an independent nation state, there were, there were localized labor organizations that attempted to further the interests of their class by influencing the social, political, and economic life of the new nation. It wasn't until the second half of the 19th century that labor took on a national character and began to make its presence felt in the economic life of the nation. Even then, it was resisted by the violence of employers and government working together. Marx's definition of history as broken, twisted, sword spectrum of class struggles is substantiated by American labor history. The earliest significant struggles between labor and capital began in the 1790s on the East Coast in cities like New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore, where mutual aid craft societies attempted to gain higher wages and shorter working hours. Resistance from employers and their backers in government to these mild organizational efforts forced the establishment of the first trade unions, the Philadelphia's Printers Union and the New York Typographical Union of 1794. Journeymen cabinet and chairmakers of 1796... The first wage strike was organized by the Society of Journeymen Cordwainers, Shoemakers. Thank you. Thank you, George, because I, if <laughs> you had told me to explain what a cordwainer is, fuck you. Not <laughs> happening. Uh, it lasted 10 or 11 weeks in 1799. It was broken by right-wing terrorist activity. 
The laying to rest of laissez-faire, the shackling of Adam Smith's invisible hand, really began during the Civil War in the U.S. The petit bourgeois dream of countless contending private proprietorships somehow managing a mellifluous blending of private and state interests when long-range plans could still be made by wage workers to be proprietors one day became a nightmare with the advent of the mass manufacturing process. At the opening of the Civil War, the U.S. was ranked fourth among the world's industrial states, behind the English Empire, the German states, and France. By 1870, the U.S. industrial manufacturing plant had doubled the value of its products. The number of factory workers drawn out of every other sect out of other sectors of the economy caused the industrial workforce to nearly double during the same period. Improvements in the arts of agricultural production drew some workers from the countryside and sent others westward toward the closing frontier. The craftsman lost his privileged economic position with the appearance of newly invented mass production machinery. This new machinery and the factory set up in general made industrial workers more expendable, and it made it possible to reduce their share of the profits. By the mid-1980s, the U.S. was producing one-third of the world's manufactured goods and was on its way to becoming first among the world's industrialist states. The expansion of U.S. industry out of the demands of the Civil War involved a complex concentration of several violent and predictable capital mandates. The old traditional sector of the landed aristocracy was broken. Machine tools, transport, and communications boomed. The basis of the industrial state, and of course an industrial elite, when raw materials, coal, iron, and other ores are not lacking. The price, or, the price or value of labor shrank, and the drive toward monopoly accumulation was firmly established. This period of capital accumulation, invention of new machinery, its use in expanding factory setups, the closed economy created by Republican government legislation, and the direction of certain amounts of capital through government contract were in part the beginnings of a new chapter in the authoritarian process of Western history. Industrial centralization, I mean the refined tactics of monopolized capitalism, have been developed right here in the U.S., this is the logical place to question some of the old left's historical assumptions about the last hundred years of life. Analysis of the old left are completely confused by the differences between bourgeois democracy and monopoly capital, and their manifestations on the American scene. They seem to feel that both can coexist in the same society. Actually, one simply grows out of the other. Monopoly capital is the central objective of corporative fascism. Prior to the Civil War and the emergence of the trends toward monopoly capital, America was dominated by bourgeois democratic economics and political rule. The economy was based upon a diverse ownership of many thousands of factory units and a political arrangement to reflect that fact. However, with the emergence and expansion of monopoly capital after the economic impetus of the Civil War, bourgeois democracy naturally began to fade. Bourgeois democracy, the political rule of the bourgeoisie, simply cannot exist after the emergence of monopoly capital. Monopoly capital has its own political expression. It develops as bourgeois democratic political de rule declines. The roots of corporativism fascism were laid with the expansion of monopoly capital into the giant cartels, corporations, and interlocking trusts. Going back to Lenin's imperialism, going yeah, back to Nkrumah's neo-colonialism, we that is that is a trend that we have seen. That is a sentence that we have seen over and over and over. Mm -hmm. The owners of the largest share of a nation's GNP will always control the political life and government of the state. Monopoly capital is corporativism. Parentheses fascism. I don't think anything that ever happened in Italy, Spain, Germany, or any other capitalist states can much can match the centralizing process that the U.S. went through in the last hundred years. 
Even the so-called public utilities, AT&T, the Santa Fe, the Pennsylvania Railroad, Western Electric, Western Union, are owned by financial institutions that on examination always turn out to be controlled by a few families who are descendants of the industrial expansionists of 1865 to 1895. The traditional Anglo-Saxon concept of law, founded on the latent principle that the haves must always be protected from the have-nots, a.k.a. where cops come from, Mm -hmm. though it did not attack labor as openly as in England, effectively prohibited the emergence of any really strong labor movement until the close of the 19th century. It did not prevent the war profiteering Rockefeller Petroleum Combination from forming. It did not stop Western Union from taking over the telegraph industry. It didn't stop Samuel Slater and the Boston Associates from tying up all of the New England textile interests. The Transcontinental Railroad hookup, May 19, 1969, Union Pacific and Central Pacific, could never have been accomplished without the government and commercial cooperation. Corruption and lawlessness were the basis of their commercial success, but no one was charged or punished by law. Any individual, on the other hand, who joined with someone else to effect an increase in his wage was guilty of conspiracy. Now, again, that, it, mm-hmm. obviously this sounds familiar because this is the United States, but this should sound really familiar, right? Like, you should be thinking, oh, you know, <laughs> ExxonMobil was, had the CEO as the Secretary of State. Like, the mm-hmm. shit's obvious. Um, you know, exactly. as uh, the biggest cartel is oil, and as oil goes, America jumps as, you know, weapon manufacturer goes. Um, America jumps, right? They, <laughs> there's a reason. It's not accidental. It's not just a bunch of incompetent boobs. It's not just a few lobbyists completely influence anything and that's it. There's an entire apparatus that determines why $50 million, most of which just cycles right back to U.S. Ma- uh, weapons manufacturers as profit, goes to Ukraine, and yet we can't give relief or lockdown or make baby formula or keep free lunches in schools or forgive college loans or provide free health care or anything like that. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. FB, uh, Anglo-Saxon law supported F.B. Gowan of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad and its coal subsidy in cutting wages and breaking unions. Just as it supported the KKK in reconstructing southeastern U.S., King of the Baltimore and Ohio, Tom Scott of the Pennsylvania, William Vanderbilt of the New York Central. Every time I hear the word law, I visualize gangs of militiamen or Pinkertons busting strikes, pigs wearing sheets and caps that fit over their pointed heads. I see a white oak and a barefooted black hanging, or snake eyes peeping down the lens of telescopic rifles or conspiracy trials. Uh, and then we take a jump into another section. David, do you want to take this one? From uh, William Reich, it's the psychology of fa- the mass psychology of fascism. Um, and it's one is mankind is biologically sick. Uh, politics is the irrational expression of this sickness. Whatever takes place in the social life is actively or passively, voluntarily or involuntarily determined by the structure of the masses of people. This character structure is formed by socioeconomic processes, and it anchors and perpetuates these processes. Man's biopathic character structure is, as it were, the fossilization of the authoritarian process of history. It is the biophysical reproduction of mass suppression. The human number five, the human structure is animated by the contradiction between intense longing for and fear of freedom. Six, the fear of freedom of masses of people is expressed in biophysical rigidity of the organism and inflexibility. Uh, and seven, every form of social leadership is merely social expression of the one or the other side of the structure of the masses of people. 
Um, and again, that was uh, the mass psychology of fascism. And then it moves on. So revolutionary change always involves the complete alteration of the substructure of property relations and the institution of substructures that support them. It leads from hierarchy to mass society. The ruling class in the U.S. is composed of one million men and their families. The Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, Morgans, Mellons, DuPonts, Hunts, and Gettys, Fords, and their minions and dependents. They use Ivy. They use the Ivy League universities and elite law schools as private schools for their offspring, and as private training grounds for their corporate hirelings. They rule with iron precision through the military, the CIA, the FBI, private foundations, and financial institutions. Their control of all the media, of education, and communication comprises an extremely effective system of thought control. And we talk about that. All of the time. All the time. <laughs> um, at, the ti- at the time when this ruling class was forming, a hundred years ago, the International Working Men's Party supported strikes that asked only for reformist measures. Although it was aware, even at the time, that reform was not the solution and it quietly advocated the seizure of the materials of production. The dichotomy between the longing for true freedom and the fear of its responsibility was apparent even then. Early radicals excused themselves by claiming that they were exploiting the inherent contradictions of monopoly capital. They hoped that the masses would spontaneously awaken to the fact that capitalism had grown decadent. But capitalism reformed itself, apologized to no one, and went on to build a network of national and international centralization that stands unrivaled by any hierarchy, past or present. Again, don't sit around on your hands and expect people to trip over rakes and goof themselves, right? The the whole like, oh, let them speak and, and you know, the, their real danger is opening their mouth. That's just platforming them. That never stops them. They have money, mm, nope. they have power, they like money, they like power, they exercise things uh, in a way that supports their money and their power. And that's yeah. that's it, right? That's, that's all we see. Mm-hmm. Um, reformism is an old story in America. There have been depressions and socioeconomic political crises throughout the period that mark the formation of the present upper class ruling circle and their controlling elites. But the parties of the left were too committed to reformism to exploit their revolutionary potential. The last round of capitalism reform, the latest redirection of its energy, was its highest and last form. The struggles of the 30s, 40s, and 50s completed the totalitarianism of the country and perfected the system of total mass social deception. I've had learned men tell me that controlled capitalism, monopoly capital, fascism, corporativism, or whatever your vernacular is, is a form of welfare statism. This is precisely what we were intended to believe, that the political takeover by monopoly capital was actually an advance in the welfare of the common people. Even the old left promotes the lie that valid concessions have been made by the ruling class, as if deceptively better working conditions and illusory wage increases were Marxism. A true Marxist revolution abolishes the wage system. The true welfare state would be the final and highest stage of social development, where the world and the state are one, where the material and psychological needs of the masses have been met and political regimes have ceased to exist. The New Deal and resulting military-industrial complex as welfare statism, I swear I will strangle the next idiot who repeats that line. 
Yes. <laughs> yes, George. Yes. All the ingredients for a fascist state were already present. Racism, the morbid traditional fear of blacks, indigenous people, Mexicans, the desire to inflict pain on them when they began to complete the industrial in industrial sectors. The resentment and the seedbed of fear is patterned into every modern capitalist society. It grows out of a sense of insecurity and insignificance that is incalculable inculcated into the workers by the conditions of life and work under capitalism. Again, you know, you, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't, I can't oppose this. I can't stand up for my rights. I might lose my job. Right. Yeah. I can't give to this homeless person. We might run out of money for our bills. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's the way you're trained, right? You're, it's not human nature. It's the nature that this system derives into you for its own purposes. And it shows the the systemic nature of racism in this country. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's yeah. not a fu- it's not a defect. It's not a bug. It's a built in necessary feature. Oh yeah, for and this that, to work the way it does. That's exactly how it turns into racism. We saw that explicitly under Reconstruction. We see that explicitly in an anti immigration now and and you know anti like full employment and government employment programs and things like that now. Right? Is is this idea that like. Oh, you know, they're coming after my job, not Mm -hmm. my boss is underpaying me and they're out in the streets and I could be out in the streets if I don't stop the system that puts this boss up there comfortably making us beg for our lives and work for him. We should work together and knock this boss off his rocker. It's, oh, my God, they're coming for my jobs. This is, this is, you know, and that's the exact kind of material thing that makes people grasp and cling on to wherever they have an advantage, even if that is the one thing upholding their greater disadvantage, keeping them from a better life, right? That's how racism works so often. That's how anti-communism works so often. That's how imperialism works so often. That's why they, they work so hard to fear monger about other countries or about revolutionaries or land back or anything like that. Or any kind of labor organization for that matter, too, because you see, and we see that a current event that we definitely missed, and that's my bad, uh, would be we were talking about the general strike in Ecuador. Uh, We saw a lot of fear monger and so much vitriol for the rail strike that was going on in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, all of the, the right wing media outlets and everything. And even, even the ostensibly left wing there, you know, CNN, whatever, just attacking and, this, and coming this student for those pays 10 grand a year to go to school and can't ride the train to school right now. And it's like, fuck yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and saying that this would, this would alienate people. And this was, this was against the, the working class and the true necessary. And you were seeing this, concept of essential workers twisted mm-hmm. again where all during the pandemic you know rail workers are considered essential workers and they've got to be there and they got to be there and then the second they actually use that leverage as being essential everyone's like well how dare they actually stop real essential workers from getting to work and doing this and right. i saw some oh my god they were self right. they well, were the, like the flip side of that is you're essential workers you can't leave people high and dry right people get mad like when nurses strike it's like well what about the sick people well, they've still accounted for that right <laughs> they're just striking so the hospitals don't make the money off it and so that people are aware and, and they can exercise their power um yeah. you know it's it but things that aren't as essential as nursing people people do that right it's either you're essential till you're not or it's no you can't strike you're you're too essential right? hello air traffic controllers under reagan mm-hmm. yep um this sense of vulnerability is the breeding ground of racism well, okay, again, shut up and let the book talk. Damn, damn it. it, shut up and let the book talk, all right. 
At the same time, the ruling class actively promotes racism against the blacks of the lower classes. Thank you, George. Shut, shut up and let the book talk. Shut up and shut let up. the book talk. Yes, yeah, we get. Yes. We hear you, people. It, we hear you. Shut really, up and let the book. Talk. It's really shut up and let, let the author talk. But yes, shut up and in this case, let George Jackson talk. He's smarter than me. Um, this programmed racism has always served to distract the huge numbers of people who subsist at just a slightly higher level than those in a more debased condition. In the 1870s, the strikes frequently ended in anti-Chinese or anti-black lynches. It confirms to dual requirements of the authoritarian personality, conformity accompanied by compulsive sadism. Racism has all has served always in the U.S. as a pressure release for the psychopathic destructiveness invinced by a people made fearful and insecure by the way of life they never understood and resented from the day of their birth. God, I wish I had a better memory. So sometimes I remember like where I learned these things in my radicalization process and I don't go to read them and go, Oh, I should explain this and then read what I just explained better from the source I got it from. <laughs> In the U.S., World War II was the principal cause of the total breakdown of the working class movement and its revolutionary consciousness, which had been built up by the crisis years of the 30s and all that went before them. Lesser attempts at suppression had been made prior to the war throughout the typical reformist policies of modern fascist regimes. The economy had been closed, banks regulated, deficit spending had been practiced on projects like TVA and CCC. The arms race that eventually culminated in the fascist military-industrial complex-based economy broke the closed economic ideal. Two conditions distinguished the successful establishment of fascism in this country. The old vanguard parties copped out and supported a nation-state ruling class war, which wasted the blood and energy of their proletarians. Again, the old vanguard parties copped out and supported a nation-state ruling class war. Oh, vote for the lesser of two evils, which Mm -hmm. wasted the blood and energy of their proletariats. At the time, resistance to war would have seemed like a simple common sense. If Stalin gave the order to support the U.S. war effort, he was a fool. In any case, the old vanguard support should have been for the people's struggle in the U.S., Stalin gave that order in order for his own country's survival, of course. But yeah, yeah. Um, we we understand that. But we are all for criticism, um, even of of the most revolutionary people. And Stalin has a lot to criticize. So, and and I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna give George's platform. That's just one I, I disagree with a bit because of Stalin's reasons. Um, with little more patience and sacrifice, Stalin could have eventually marched to the Atlantic. With all of Europe in ruins and the German economy already in its final stages of disintegration with the U.S. presence in Europe, capitalism could be dead today. Instead, U.S. imperialism rose to behemoth proportions. After the war, international markets opened in Europe, Africa, and Asia, with the flea market of radios, TVs, and novelties here at its center. For the sake of these trinkets and bu- and Bobbles, 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 bobbles. Okay, trinkets and bobbles. The labor elites diffused the righteous demands of the people. Consensus politics formed as a result of their defections simply solidified the totalitarian regime with all the opinion molding facilities under the ruling class. Elections and political parties have no significance when all serious contenders for public office are fascist and the elector and the electorate is thoroughly misled about the true nature of the candidates. Again, elections That's and relevant. Politi- <laughs> What's that? That's relevant. That's relevant. So again, elections and political parties have no significance when all serious contenders for public office are fascist and the electorate is thoroughly misled about the true nature of the candidates. 
One cannot say all the people who vote are unaware, just as one cannot say the 1,200 professors who backed Mussolini were all frightened. Those who are, are aware and still do nothing constructive are among the most pathetic victims of the totalitarian process. The necessary shock troops and tools for creating the false, contrapositive, psychosocial basis of a fascist-type pseudo-society were in short supply in this country prior to and during the process of the fascist takeover. There was a little of this consciousness among the middle class. So the first terror came from the specially formed and hired goons of the DuPonts and Rockefellers, the Black Legion, the Guardians of the Republic, the FBI. They destroyed the already disintegrated vanguard, leaving the degenerate elements of the working class as the only available mass. Class relations were slowly altered as a result of this action by the co-opted labor sectors. Government agents were sent to infiltrate scattered labor movements. The disguise was complete. The satisfaction of labor's short-term economic interests was made possible by the giant consumers' market and the military complex. Ties were formed between rulers and labor leaders. The elites of the proletarian movement were compromised. A ruling class and its governing elites were centralized and were carefully co-optive. A fascist arrangement. Death in prison for all who object. Fascism in its final insecure state. It has happened here, and the only recourse is an appeal to arms. The corporative state... <clears throat> sorry, the corporate state allows no genuinely free political opposition. They only allow meaningless gatherings where they can plant more spies than participants. They feel secure in their ability to mold the opinion of people interested only in wages. However, real revolutionary activity will draw panic-stricken gunfire or heart attacks. Again, they can talk about jobs in the middle class all day, but you start talking about you know, overthrowing the bourgeoisie and all of a sudden you're under surveillance or under surveillance. You go out there and protest and you're getting tear gassed. You know, you, you can't rock the system, right? It's just all, yeah. buzz, it's all there to be buzzwords. So what is to be done after a revolution has failed? After our enemies have created a conservative mass society based on meaningless electoral politics, spectator sports, and a 3% annual rise in purchasing power strictly relegated to negate itself with a corresponding rise in the cost of living? What is to be done about an expertly, scientifically calculated, contrapositive mobilization of the entire society? What can we do with the people who have gone through the authoritarian process and come out sick to the core? There will be a fight. The fight will take place in the central cities. It will be spearheaded by the blacks of the lower class and their vanguard party, the Black Panther Party. Real union activity will eliminate the corporative ties between the regime ruling class and labor. Again, all of these pop-up unions that are actually generally grassroots, that's a huge base of support and organization, and there's a lot of lesson learning, and the better you can keep out of the AFL-CIO with that, the better you are, you know. Mm -hmm. People at the top will be rem removed, and the guy with the programmed mind will have no union boss to think for him. He will remain neutral or join us in our fight to liberate him. He will work this attack at the productive level indirectly by first building our central city communes, which will revolutionize the all-too-conservative black laborer. We will build these communes against all resistance, the pamphlet in one hand, the gun in the other. In blacks, authoritarian traits are mainly the effects of terrorism and a lack of intellectual stimulation. They have been choosing the less dangerous and complicated mode of existence, survival. 
All classes, all people are subject to the authoritarian syndrome. It requires only the proper set of eco-sociological circumstances, pressures to turn blacks around and reawaken their revolutionary consciousness. We're hungry. Our overall task is to separate the people from the hated state. They must be made to realize that the interests of the state and the ruling class are one and the same. They must be taught to realize that the present political regime exists only to balance the productive forces within the society in favor of the ruling class. It is at the ruling class and the governing elites, including those of labor, that we must aim our bolts. The average working man will simply withdraw or watch with secret satisfaction or actively join in when we bring his union boss under attack. We blacks have lived with terrorism for generations. It no longer affects us. It will intensify. We must prepare a counter-terrorism. A man can never be so repressed that he cannot strike back in some way. But it must begin now. The Rand Corporation does 80% of its work for the military-industrial intelligence complex. 750 or more colleges offer police science courses. 247 additional colleges offer associate's degree in law enforcement. 44 offer bachelor's degree. The National Guard numbers 390,000. Bigger now. Uh, The CIAD, the Counterintelligence Analysis Detachment, the 113th Military Intelligence Group, is designed for the surveillance of private citizens. The police state isn't coming. It's here. Glaring and threatening. How do we raise a new revolutionary consciousness against a system programmed against us, uh, against our old methods? Revolution is against the law. It will not be allowed, not in significant form. That makes the true revolutionary an outlaw, and the black revolutionary a doomed man. As blacks, we must function as the vanguard in any hostilities. We must use a new approach, unite and revolutionize the black central city commune, and slowly provide the people with incentive to fight by allowing them to create programs that will meet all of our social, political, and economic needs. We must fill the vacuums left by the established order. We must push the settlers off our land when they won't cooperate with the new communal life of our system. We must learn from the people. We must learn from the workers, the discipline they are so highly skilled in. In return, we must teach them the benefits of our revolutionary ideals. We must move blacks to the forefront of a really productive assault on the outside enemy of reactionary culture. Not only the production level, but in all significant areas of property relations. We must promote and support enforced rent strikes. Merchants must come over to our side or face the appropriation of their property for the commune. We must build a subsistence economy and a socio-political structure so that we become an example for all revolutionary people. And that all jives specifically with the program of the Black Panther Party, right? It's it's a black nationalism, and it's, you know, the black vanguard is the head of the revolutionary, and it will cooperate with the other vanguards of those respective groups whose primary job is support of that revolution that the black vanguard is leading, right? And, yep. <clears throat> and so, you know, the Rainbow Coalition included, you know, white groups and included Puerto Rican groups, Um but it was separate parties within those arenas, and then the Black Panther Party left, uh, led it. And that is one way of organizing we've talked about. It could be something like that. It could be one more conglomerate party. Um, it could be a number of things. And two things we've always expected at the forefront and, and something, you know, we should learn from, from, you know, all the revolution of the seventies not working. Um, when, you know, there were two separate vanguards between AIM and the, the Black Panther Party, right? Is, is mm-hmm. the vanguard should probably be more of an indigenous and black 
coalition if it's not a more mixed party, if it is divided as the Black Panther Party did. And we're just going to finish this off with the last two paragraphs. Mm -hmm. Fascism has established itself in a most disguised and efficient manner in this country. It feels so secure that the leaders allow us the luxury of faint protest. Take protest too far, however, and they will show their other face. Doors will be kicked down in the night, and machine gun fire and buckshot will become the medium of exchange. I think back to all of the Black Lives Matter protesters Mm -hmm. uh, around uh, 2020. Well, 2020, I was thinking back to... Oh, you were thinking back to 2014. I'm thinking back to Michael Brown. Yeah, I'm thinking back to Michael Brown. How almost all because and again, the 2020 protests may bear this out as well. And and water protectors um, run into that too. Correct. Correct. And um, to a lesser degree, these these protests have risen up uh, with the latest Supreme Court ruling against Roe v. Wade. Right. I mean, they were throwing around. They usually don't touch the bourgeois. Like they'll they'll arrest a Jane Fonda, but they don't do anything mean to them. They were throwing Jody Sweeten around. Yeah. And I'm imagining, I mean, I'm thinking of more specifically all of those organizers that were in in mm. 2014, at least from the Michael Brown case, that suddenly mysteriously died in their car on fire. Yeah. Or hung themselves or things like that, where you're seeing if you take this protest too far, there is lethal consequence. The state does come down in that way, uh, one way or another. Mm-hmm. I am an extremist, a communist, not communistic, a communist. And I must be destroyed or I will join my comrades in the only communist party in this country, the Black Panther Party. I will give them my all, every dirty fighting trick in the annals of war. Nothing will defeat our revenge and nothing will countervail our march to victory. We come to our conclusion, the only historical recourse that is left to us. Freedom means warmth and protection against harsh exposure to the elements. It means food, not garbage. It means truth, harmony, and the social relations that spring from these. It means the best medical attention whenever it's needed. It means employment that is reasonable, that coincides with the individual's necessity and feelings. We will have this freedom even at the cost of total war. And that is the end of that particular section. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will be picking up with the oppressive contract uh, next week, uh, starting uh, starting next week. Yes. Uh, all right. That being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Uh, there are a number of different ways that you can reach out to us if you would like to do so. First of which is through email. You can email us marksmadnesspod at gmail.com next up you can hit us up on twitter we are at marks madness pod on twitter dms are open if you need them uh and last but not least there is a link in our twitter bio to our discord server which is our more day-to-day uh where we talk with our community you know everyone everyone brings what they've got to the table um we try and support each other as best we can uh and then we play video games uh occasionally we do that too um and there's a book club there is a book club book club is finishing uh working their way through the selected works of ho chi minh uh by vijay prashad uh currently and then there will be voting they always vote on their next book so if you want input or you have something that you think needs to deserves to be read in the group uh by all means come on in bring it in we are always welcome uh that being said david it is time for our disclaimer yeah um so back when we started this uh nathan wanted to go read capital and works of theory works of history or something you want to read with someone else uh preferably with a large group that you're organizing with uh that way you know you can get other sources of input you can get other perspectives you can make sure you have the full context to everything you get another chance to review it so it sinks in better there's uh, numerous benefits to being in a reading group and so we decided well okay 
okay, we'll do that. But there's only two of us, so we'll record it. And hopefully when we share it with you, this can be helpful to people. And lo and behold, it's been helpful to a lot of people. And ever since then, what our vision has been is hopefully you're out, you're out in your party, you're out in your cadre, you're out in your, your organizing group, whatever it is. And hopefully you have a reading group, a political education group, uh, that's hopefully reading these books along with us. And then we can be another essential, you know, digital member into that group, someone else to give you input, to give you another chance to review it, to give you some of that context and just bring more to the table, um, for you because more voices is always more to the table. Um, and let's say they're not doing that. They're working on something shorter, something more applicable to the project they're on. Uh, and we can, you know, maybe you're reading this along with us and we can be your reading group. We can give you all of those benefits that the reading group has. And let's say that's not happening. And it's either a book like this that we're reading more word for word, like an enhanced ebook, or it's a book we summarize more. Whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you, because we want these works out there guiding your actions. And when we turn these works into revolutionary action, that's a phenomenon called praxis. Praxis, of course, by definition, can't exist without theory. And reading this theory without doing the praxis is completely useless. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.